1: All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Phil Tarotko. It's June 1st, 2022, with Nicholson Library at Linfield University. Phil, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks uh, for having first, me. first question to get you started is, why wine?
2: Um, yeah, so uh, first off, thank you very much for having me as well. I appreciate being here. Um, so, why wine? Um, that was one I was ready to prepare to answer. <laughs> uh, I, I, what I find so um, intriguing about wine is it's, it's a contradiction of like a lot of different things. Um, it's kind of high and low culture. It's agriculture. It's luxury culture. It's manual, physical labor. At the same time, it's very intellectual. Um, there's a very scientific, quantifiable piece of it, but then there's an also a very kind of subjective, artisanal, art, art, artistry kind of piece of it as well. Um I think I've always been uh kind of uh, attracted towards these these kind of contradicting difficult things to to put into a box, and I think wine very much kind of encompasses all of that um, It's also global, which is really cool um you can find it in on almost all continents uh, and uh and yeah, lots of different cultures, and you know everybody needs to eat and sleep and and drink, and I think wine fits very closely into those uh, kind of basic needs. I like that contradictions.
1: That's a new one for us. I don't think we've heard anybody describe it quite that way. So tell me about. Um
2: kind of life before wine. Where did you grow up and uh, how did you find your way into wine? Yeah, uh, so uh, I grew up in the suburbs of New York City uh, between Long Island and Connecticut. Um, and I, Long Island is uh, a, a wine region, you could say, uh, but not where I was living. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, when I was 18, I had the opportunity to, to come out to, to the Northwest uh, for university at the University of Oregon. Um, And it seemed like a good opportunity to to kinda go far from home and and try something very different. Um, Through school, uh, I had an opportunity to to go to to France, to Lyon in France, which is uh, the capital of gastronomy. Um, And while I was living there, I lived there for a year, um, I had this dream of uh, becoming a chef and going to the Institute of Paul Bocuse. Um, And so I came back to the U.S. to finish school. Uh, thinking that that was going to be the path, and then uh, started working in restaurants, actually like beer-specific uh, restaurants, um, and realized that uh, the, the life of a chef is not quite as glamorous as it may seem from the outside. Um, and yeah, I ended up doing uh, like the Cicerone test, which is kind of like a sommelier um, equivalent for the, the world of beer. Um, and like uh, lots of attention to to sensory elements Um, and yeah in a very very long story short um, had an opportunity to work in a tasting room Um, and then uh, things kind of rolled from there Uh, I think you had interviewed uh, one of my mentors Ray Walsh Mm -hmm. Um, and Ray kind of gave me a really awesome opportunity to, to do the tasting room and then at the same time his assistant winemaker had moved on to uh, a little bit more of a, um, a what's the word, uh, he was a little bit older than me, kind of in a position where he needed a little more security in his job, moved on to a kind of bigger winery um, and I had the opportunity to start helping in production and that's kind of where the, the wine journey began from there. So food and, food and then beer and then wine, kind of in that order.
1: Yeah. What, what excited you about food and beer before before one? What was exciting to you about gastronomy in, that, in, that, yeah. in those times?
2: Yeah, um, I think uh, I, I had never, I don't come from a family of particularly like adventurous food people. Um, we're very like, uh, you know, meat and potatoes type folk. And um, I think going to France and living there and just really like immersing myself in the culture, um, food is an incredibly important piece of like all aspects of culture. Um, I, we had this, my wife is French so I can like joke a little bit about French people, uh, but it, 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 we joke about how like if you if you want to learn French you really just have to learn to talk about food and that's like you know a good percentage of the conversations that are important is what's at the table and you'll be at the table and you talk about what you ate yesterday and what you're going to have tomorrow. Um, And it really becomes this kind of glue of society and and culture in a lot of ways because, you know, um, uh, like in in France and in many countries, not just in in France, but, um, you know, uh, the family unit is based around the table. And, you know, social interactions occur around food. Um, I think many folks would argue that alcohol is social lubricant. um, And I think you, you quickly see where wine plays a role in all of that. Um, and I think you know uh, getting into beer first I think beer is is a very similar uh, kind of um uh, a similar domain, you know, uh, people really pay attention to sensory aspects, um, there's definitely a craft behind it. Um, wine may or, not, may or may not be debatably older, it depends on who you're talking to, it depends on, on uh, what countries you're using as reference points, uh, but I think, you know, just this culture around like consuming food and breaking bread and, and you know, uh, e- enjoying uh, food and drink with people is was where the, the intoxication of it all kind of began.
1: What was your sort of introduction to wine? What was the, you mentioned working in a tasting room, was that the first real introduction you'd had to wine or did you have some knowledge before that?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, so I moved to France when I was 20. I turned 21 in France, uh, which is when you're an American university student is cool because you skip a year. Uh, you don't have to wait till 21. And uh, it was interesting because I realized in France, you know, it's so, wine is so embedded in the culture that even, you know, like uh, teenagers have some sort of understanding of wine Um, you know in France it's much more common for you know to give not like a child but uh, you know a a young teenager you know to taste wine and and for it to not be quite so taboo as maybe it is in American culture and I I started to realize uh, like when you go to friends houses uh, for dinner and whatnot like the wine was a really big deal even when you're 20 years old and you get invited to your friend's house and it's your responsibility to get the wine you got to pick a good wine. Um, And, you know, you go to the store for the first time and you see all these different bottles and, and, you know, in in France and in Europe they don't label bottles the same way as we do in America where we have, you know, the the grape varietal, the year. Uh, We're very um, categorical in the U.S. and in Europe things are based by place and there's a lot of uh, uh, context that you need to know to really understand the wine. Um, and you start to realize that, uh, you know, it's, it's this really big world and so you start with the, the basics. I think most people start with red wines from Bordeaux, um, you know, and, and I think that's a really good entry point for a lot of people. It's, it's often uh, when you're looking for good wine at a reasonable price, those wines are often right in that, that area. Um, and then, you know, you start tasting a bunch of wines and the more you taste, the more you get an idea of what you like. And then you just start down this kind of rabbit hole. Uh, but that that moment, I think my first exposure was when uh we get invited to dinner. Everyone has a responsibility. One person is cooking, one person is going to do the dishes. I, they always, my French friends, always thought it was funny to give the American the wine decision. And uh, that, the pressure came on me. And, and ultimately, it was a, a very cool position to be in. And, you know, you get put in this position where you have to make the decision. And if you make a bad decision, everyone's going to let you know about it. <laughs> and, and what's cool about it, too, is it's not just a right or wrong. You know, there's a, a lot more elements to it. And maybe it was a good wine, but it didn't match well with what you're eating. Um, maybe somebody's got a story oh I know that place my grandfather did this and that Um, At one point my roommate uh, who was from Jura, um, which is a kind of older wine region, um, he would go back every weekend and visit his grandfather and his granddad would give him food and wine to bring back to to our apartment. So every Sunday night we'd have this like big feast and that was a a big way I got to discover Mm -hmm. all these different bottles that were not chosen by me and therefore, um, you know, came came with uh, a little bit more of a guarantee of quality. So, uh, you first tell me about your first
1: wine job, then your first tasting room job. Uh, what did you think of it, and, and where? What
2: did you have to learn, or what did you learn yeah. at, in it? Um, so I think uh, to, to to give credit where it's due, I think the uh, the beer uh, position that I worked in was really good in in helping me get to the to the wine tasting room. In that uh, it was the place I was working was a it's in Eugene, really well known place. Um, they have like 24 taps, tons of uh, of microbreweries, and constantly rotating taps, all the different styles of beers. And uh, you start to learn that people are very particular about things, and you can start to gauge and learn what questions to ask people and then how to tailor their decisions of what they might drink from there Um, and then when you switch to the wine tasting room it's it's a similar role you start to you know you can ask people what they like uh, what kind of flavor profiles they like and then you start to you know figure out um, where they might find themselves on the tasting flight and what might be of interest to them. Um, To give credit to to Ray Walsh, Um, Ray is from New Zealand and has lived in Oregon for like the past 20, 25, 30 years and uh, he goes back and forth and makes wine in both places and so that was a really cool position of being because I got to like present wine from two different places and it was the same winemaker, the same grape varietals. Um, and so they say the best way to learn is to teach someone else, you know, it, it instills it in how you figure it out. And uh, when you talk about wine and you explain wine to a bunch of people and they ask really good questions and it makes you formulate how you're going to respond, I think that was the, the start of um, starting to get a real understanding of, of wine in particular.
1: What was? What did you think of
2: uh, the kind of the retail side of beer and wine, and the 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 the,
1: pub, the sort of the public service? Yeah. Of it? How did how did that sort of fit for you? What did you enjoy about it?
2: Um, so I've done sales for a long time. I have worked in shoe stores for since I was like fifteen until twenty one, basically. Uh, so I, I was familiar with sales. Um, it's uh, it's like the best and the worst. Uh, you know, it all depends on the customer. You get folks that are you know it's customer service you get folks that come in and they're having a bad day and they're going to you know put that on to you um and then you have folks that like have never really had a serious conversation about wine and then you get to be the curator for that initial discussion and those were the really valuable kind of conversations and you know and and I think uh, I think you know we're in a university right now I think there's a lot to be said about like um not naivety in a negative sense, but approaching something without a preconceived notion about it, I think you ask really, really honest questions. And, um, and when you're in a tasting room scenario and you get folks that maybe don't know a lot about wine but are very, um, you know, attentive and observant, um, I think you get asked really good questions and then you, you know, you start looking at it from a different, a different kind of perspective.
1: Tell me about your own wine education. You mentioned the the best way to to learn is to teach, and that's so true. Um, How long did it take you to feel comfortable in a role of understanding wine well enough to teach it or to talk kind of talk candidly about it?
2: Yeah, um, I think it, it comes slowly and uh, working in a tasting room is interesting because you're really presenting like one product. Um, and so, you know, the more you present, that it's like at any given time, you might have six to eight wines that you're pouring, right? So, you know, you can pretty quickly get the learning curve of those wines. You start to see how people react. You can, uh, in, in a short period of time, learn that really quick and then what you really realize is when people start coming in and they may not know your wine so you have a lot to tell them about the wine that you're pouring but then they also have their own reference of wine in general that's when you start to see you know the world start opening up um, and realizing that you know in order to um, be a good sommelier or uh, tasting room person. Uh, it's not just about knowing what you're pouring. It's also about knowing, you know, the, the world of wine. Mm. And then uh, you fall into the trap of many people who get hooked on wine. And you know, there's always more to learn. There's more regions to understand. There's more styles. Um, you know, you uh, you start the the educational mountain climbing if you will. Talking about the, the
1: transition then into production. Uh, what was that, was that something you were looking for or something you kind of more fell into?
2: Yeah, uh, so I remember I worked at the, the bar for the beer bar for about a year and it was during my last, my senior year of university and then the year after uh, following and uh, i remember having this uh bar life you know you go to sleep really late you wake up really late you end up hanging out with just people that work in bar life and i remember having this like epiphany at like 22 and realizing that uh maybe like 21 something in the early 20s and realizing that i was like man if i don't you know do something physical now i might not later in life have the opportunity to to do physical work. Um, So that was something interesting. I thought for a while, I was like, maybe I'll just do construction or something. Um, I had a very unique uh, situation where, um, I'll try and keep it brief, but uh, uh, I was living in an apartment building there was this thing that happened in Eugene where um, a, a property management company went under, and a lot of people who owned their apartment buildings had to then manage them themselves. Um, and I was—it was a very old apartment complex. Um, we had a very non-responsive management company that ultimately went under. So I did some of the repairs in the apartment, and the owner came. Uh, this was like uh, kind of mid to late in my senior year at university, and like introduced himself to all the tenants and said he was going to meet, uh, you know, going to start managing it himself and I showed him some of the repairs I'd done in the house and he was like oh like do you want to manage the apartment and and uh I was young 20s, coming out of school, not had a lot of money and the opportunity to like work for my rent was a really good opportunity and it also allowed me to do some of these physical things. Um, So that came first and just doing like you know little repairs and stuff or you know meeting with uh, the plumbers or the electricians and just kind of like chaperoning and learning from those guys. Um, And so that the interest for the the kind of physical Uh, What what maintenance and, and, um, you know, repairing things kind of began and then the wine opportunity came um, and it just seemed to to fit right into that. You know, you're working with pumps, you're dealing with tanks, uh, you know, everything's three phase in a winery, um, you know, things that you learn fixing uh, a toilet or a sink and plumbing in a house, you know, it, it has to do with liquid dynamics when you're filling tanks and moving wine around. Um, so, yeah, it was a uh, in retrospect it's funny how it all lines up like that, but um, you know one thing kind of led to another, and uh, the production aspect to me was really intriguing too, because the more you have authority, not at that point you know I wasn't making decisions in the winery necessarily, but um uh, the more you have authority and the more you're involved in the production process, the better you are at selling it, too, right? You know, the, the, when somebody asks you about the wine, it's like you you were there. You did all the processes for it. Um, and then I had a great experience. Uh, my very first harvest, so I started, I want to say, in January working in the tasting room. And then... Sl- what year was this? Uh, this was um, 2015. Started working... Uh, In the tasting room and uh, doing a lot of tasting room stuff, and then you start. Doing uh, like the way to work your way into wine labeling, like uh, Mr. Miyagi, you know you want to be a kung-fu master, you wax the car. Uh, if you want to be a winemaker, you like paint the walls and you label bottles and you do all the meticulous things that the person who's really focused on the winemaking doesn't really want to deal with. You know you got to earn your stripes like any industry out there. And so I started doing those things. I started helping with the bottlings, helping with rackings, um, cleaning tanks, which is an obvious one. You know there's a lot of uh, not glorious parts of wine making But in, in retrospect, is actually like a really beautiful piece about it too. Um, but anyway, so the first harvest came in that September. It came a little earlier than expected and uh Ray, my, my mentor, uh, had a sales trip already planned to Alaska and so he had left and the first fruit came in when he wasn't there. And I uh, had never worked harvest before um, and all of a sudden the fruit came in and I was, you know, dealing with it and it was one of those like sink or swim scenarios and uh, uh, all praise due to Ray, um, super cool guy. and. Uh, kind of I think he probably had confidence in me to make to to do the right things and whatnot, but really put me in a position where, you know, it was like, okay, you know, you do it. <laughs> and I was calling him like every day, five times a day and the chiller of the winery turned off for some reason. There's all the things that happen when you're it's the first time and, you know, when you do something for the first time this tiny little error seems like this massive earthquake. Um and so yeah, it was a very quick um uh, involvement in the production, and then we worked that whole harvest as two people. I think we did 198 tons, which is like a lot. And it's, uh, you know, that it's a really good facility they have down there, um, it's pretty well equipped, but that's a lot. And uh, yeah, it was a, a very big testing moment. I remember like later in the harvest having a moment of like, you know, our. 62 or something like that in the week and just like being like, Ray, I don't know if I can do this, you know, and uh, him being a very, I'm sure he's seen, yeah, I know he's mentored many young winemakers and, uh, and he just kind of coached me through it. And, uh, and yeah, you just kind of do. And that's, I think that's the, the, the um, addicting part of the winemaking uh, crush season is you just do. And, uh that may be a piece that isn't always uh, explained to the customers is that you know, there's an ideal And then there's a practicality, and the winemaker's gift is to make those two things run parallel. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, you open your eyes and it's three months later, and you just worked for God knows how many hours, you know. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's a a, a bit of an an addicting kind of thing. I think winemakers are very, like, compulsive, kind of OCD kind of folks. You want to control everything, but the reality is it's wine and it's agriculture and it's nature and you can't control everything
1: there's something appealing about the the thought of not really being able to think. Yes. Just being able to do and
2: react, Yes. And and, um, like we said earlier, the contradictory piece of it, you know, is you have a plan but there, you know that you can't, you're can't. you not going to follow the plan. <laughs> it's, it's impossible to follow the plan. You know, if you wrote down everything you're going to do in harvest and then the grapes start coming in, it's, it's impossible to have it dialed in like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of those awesome contradictions is, you know, it's, it is intelligent and it's also physical, and then you have to make, you know, decisions on the fly. Um, one One piece of advice that Ray gave me, and it really sticks, and I think applies to many more things than just winemaking making is um you know, why making is a series of decisions and you need to follow the thread of decision making. So, if you started making decisions early in the process because you had one thing in mind, you can't undo that later. You need to follow the same stream, the same direction that you had in the beginning and, you know, evolve and, and you know, react according to what's in front of you. Um, but you, you know, you have to have some kind of fluency, otherwise you're going to you pull your hair out going crazy and trying to undo and redo and I think you know, on, on many big projects in life that is uh, important advice because, you know, there's, a, there's infinite different ways to achieve things and, you know, when you start in one fashion, you often have to just continue, continue.
1: That's a pretty unique first harvest experience. Uh, tell me what, ha- you, you, you get done with harvest, you, you finally have a chance to stop and, and breathe a little bit what were you kind of thinking at that point was it still something
2: that you were excited to do again or were you thinking like what else can i do besides that ever again yeah i i, I sat down with ray and i was like you need to make me assistant winemaker and i need a business card <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, ray being the awesome guy that he is he did it and uh and I think that was a crucial moment of like, you know, if, if that didn't happen, then I don't know if I was going to continue with it. It was just, you know, when you put so much of yourself into something, you want to see something come back from it. and. Uh it was a very unique situation, you know often when you start at a winery you're a seller hand and there's a team of folks and then it just being myself and Ray, it was uh, for myself it was a wonderful experience, you know you're working directly with the person who's calling all the shots and you know you there's no filter of information, you're getting it straight from the source. Um, but also it's you know a, a difficult situation where you know it's, it's right on you and there's no one to fall back on or you know if you're not sure how to do it and Ray's not there at that moment. You have to do something, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I was like, I need to be assistant winemaker, and so it was a very quick promotion to assistant winemaker, um, and it, I, I owe a lot of credit to Ray for um, for putting me in a position where that could, that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it was scary and crazy, and I don't know, I think a lot of times in your early 20s, you're almost like looking for something to like really hold on to, and you know, like the water ski, you grab the line and you ski, you know, <laughs> and the wine was the boat. <laughs> So, how did that change
1: your approach, if at all? Now that you're, you got a business card now and everything. Yeah, yeah. What? Uh, how did it kind of change maybe your, your approach or maybe your perception of what was kind of come next?
2: Yeah, um, definitely, you know, with a business card and a title. Um, it it brings authority and ownership over, uh, so now when you're back in the tasting room and like you're a young guy working in the tasting room or a young girl, you're a young person working in the tasting room, you know, sometimes, I remember there's this one lady, I'll never ever forget it, and this, I'm sure anyone's work at customer service can relate to this, and this woman just walks in, and she was probably, have visited several other wineries that day, and she just walks in and like looks at me, and I was 22 or 23, and I uh, She's like, I've been drinking wine longer than you've been alive. And I, I, what I wanted to say, what I didn't say, is like, that means you're an alcoholic. That <laughs> doesn't mean you know wine, you know. And and I didn't because, you know, in customer service, you got to just let things roll and you just, you know, diffuse situations and push things in the way you're trying to go. Um, but that, that was something that would kind of occur, not often, but, you know, you, you have to prove yourself to folks when they come into a, a place Uh, for an educational experience and you don't look like you might have the ownership over what you're doing, you know, you you have to prove it. Mm -hmm. And uh, having a title was a really big piece for me, you know, and when people are like, well, who are you? You know, what's this kid doing here? Like, well, actually, I'm the assistant winemaker, you know, and and I work with Ray and me, Ray and I did all these things together, you know, and it it puts you in a role where you can uh, have ownership over what you do and it gives you a lot of credibility. So what came
1: next then? Uh, you're, now you're a assistant winemaker, what came next for you?
2: Yeah, um, started, uh, I think many folks who work in small wineries will have this experience of uh, you wear all the hats, right? Um, you know, you, uh, so, uh, um, kind of a, a typical small winery scenario, uh, husband and wife business, you know, they break up the different roles, whether it be managing the tasting room, doing events, doing the wine making. Um, and so I found myself in this position where I'd just be like changing clothes all the time. You go to the winery, you do rackings, you clean the tanks, change your clothes, put on a nice shirt, go to the tasting room, sell wine for the evening. Um, so doing those two things all the while still doing the property management stuff, um, which was cool because wine isn't always the most lucrative uh, business in the world. So I Having other like hustles on the side can really help you sustain. Um, and yes, continued in that role um, for almost three years. Um, and. Uh, wow, that's really like brushing things together. But yeah, just continue working with Ray. Uh, continued, you know, learning from the mentor. Um, working with his wife as well, who handled a little bit more of like the business kind of customer service side of things. Um, ended up doing all different, you know, the winemaking. But then, you know. Uh, Painting the floor of the tasting room and doing little repair work around, and uh, yeah, I think that's something that a lot of winemakers uh, love about the job is it's a very dynamic thing, and I think anybody who works for a small business, you know, that's just part of it. You have to be dynamic. You have to be willing to do whatever it takes to to keep the business rolling. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it turned into like doing wine club management, which was not my favorite thing at all. But, you know, it's totally necessary because, uh, you know, if it's another Ray Walsh quote, uh, it's easy to make it, it's hard to sell it. Um, you know, and, and like any small business, you can have a brilliant idea and be really good at what you do, but if you can't uh, monetize it, you know, you can't sustain the business. And so that was a really important piece for me to learn as well was, you know, you can put your head down and do the work really well, but if you can't articulate that to somebody, why the product has value, then you're not gonna be doing what you do all that long. Mm-hmm. You know you have to have the, the understanding of the, the business piece of it as well. So it's a little bit of an apprenticeship in everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, in life, in, uh, in production, in business, uh, in, in small business. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that's uh, something to speak specifically on Oregon. Um, I think there's a lot of small wineries here and I think that's really cool and that's like the heart of uh, why people fall in love with wine is the charm of the small business. And um, I don't know that if I was in a different place that I might have been able to access as much information, as much education as I accessed as quickly. Um, it, It was a rather quick projectile into the world of wine.
1: Tell me about your sort of, the build for your sort of skills and confidence uh, in, in, that, in those kind of years with Ray. Uh, how did you feel like, say second, tell me about your second harvest. Yeah. What, what was different about the second harvest?
2: Yeah, um, I, I think the third one is Thir- where it really sticks. Because number one is like, you're just trying to do, right? And if you've achieved what you needed to do, then wow, like pat on the back. Uh, second harvest is, you're just trying to put things in order um, and you're like okay I remember doing this and then we did this after and so you're just trying to like situate the the big uh, macro view of things and then I think to me the third one is where you start to uh, critically analyze the decisions and be like okay we did this because of that uh, I remember two years ago we did this but that's because the fruit looked like that um, so yeah it, it's you know it doesn't all come at once definitely uh, but I think the third one is where you start to or for me at least, is where you start to um, understand a little more the decision-making process versus just like, how. You know, you have to learn how before you learn why, right? Um, and yeah, so number two was just putting things in order. Um, and yeah, number three, we got a, uh, a good friend of mine, just traveled the world, came back, was looking for a gig, and I kind of hooked him up with the gig working with Ray and myself. Um, and that was cool because like we said before the best way to learn is to teach and now I got to like have Someone else on the team who was just learning and and try and explain things to him while he was asking really good questions And I think that's where the things started to solidify for me So you mentioned you were there for about three years.
1: What comes next?
2: Yeah, um, Next came, like, the the end of early 20s crisis of we were like, what am I doing and am I going to keep doing this? Um, And so, as I mentioned, Ray is from New Zealand. I like knew that m- going to New Zealand to work harvest was like maybe something that was possible, but I wasn't totally sure. Um, I had a girlfriend for a while, we had just broken up, you're inevitably questioning everything about your life when those things kind of happen. Um, and I had a moment where I, I, I'm from New York, I, uh, everyone I grew up with is all in New York City more or less, and uh, and I had this moment of like, all right, I'm just gonna move back to New York, and like if I had to work in a wine shop somewhere, I'll just do that, You know. And, um, and, um, and at that moment, because everything happens the way it happens, uh, that was right at the moment where Ray offered me the, the opportunity to go abroad and, and work for his partner in New Zealand and, and be the assistant winemaker there. Um, and it all happened very, very quickly. Um, I ended up leaving the position as property manager in order to go do that. Um, and I got a position as assistant winemaker moving to New Zealand. Um, and so, kind of moved down there um, in the beginning of 2018. Um, and had, had the job set up, they offered me a car when I got there, um, they're like the nicest people in the world, shout out Luke Cowley and Kate Cowley um, and their whole family. Um, and yeah, it was another position where I was the assistant winemaker for one winemaker and another really um, valuable educational piece where you have that direct connection to the person making the decisions. And the, the, the other circle of this whole story is that Luke had actually apprenticed under Ray um, prior to me working for him. Uh, so you know, like any industry, things are, um, what's the word? Um, inbred is not the right word, incestual, that's even a little bit harsh but yeah everybody knows everybody you know and um, I think like most things out there you know you get places by doing right by people and then them opening doors for you and um, you know following the path and you don't always know where it's gonna go but uh, and uh, yeah so started working and that was an interesting experience as well we were a very small, uh, originally the the facility that we're working at was a very large co-op and it was a lot of small wineries renting space from the co-op because owning wine equipment is super expensive. It makes way more sense if you have a lot of people splitting that cost. Um, And then over time, the the owner company of the facility realized that it was more lucrative for them to just make all the wine themselves and then sell it as different brands. And so we were in a really unique position where we were the last of the small wineries on this like mega facility, so I believe we We did uh, 350 tons, give or take and the facility itself did like a quarter million tons. It was huge, huge you know, i would never seen wine production like that ever. Um, and so it was really unique because we were this little corner of the giant, you know, campus facility that it was. They had like, I think 115 interns working there and we were just a very, very small little piece. But what was really cool is we're doing this really small artisanal winemaking right next to this very, very large production industrial winemaking. And, and again, for myself, it was a really uh, valuable learning experience Experience of seeing these two different sides of things um, and you know making wine in large scale um, I think often gets like villainized in the world of wine but I think to be totally fair there's there's a lot of skill involved in that um, and to, to um, particularly in the modern uh in like the 2022 wine world i think we like villainize a little bit the use of additives in wine and um very scientific wine making maybe and uh I think there's a skill in making like a million cases of a wine that's like very drinkable and enjoyed by people all over the world. And I think that uh, credit is due to, to folks who are able to do that and reproduce a wine over and over and over um, that is uh, enjoyable and that, that will be consumed. Um, so it was interesting. You get to see all the different styles, the different sizes. I remember going into the dry goods facility of that major uh, uh, production operation and like it's a warehouse. bigger than the winery I was working in, <laughs> of just additives, bentonite and sulfur and charcoal and uh, yeast food and, you know, thousands of different yeasts. And, you know, it's just like, um, it's, it's, an, uh, it's a, a, what's the word? Uh, it's impressive to see that, you know. Um, and then you also see the other piece where um, uh, in, in the new world, we have created two roles very much. We've created like viticulture and winemaking. And I think in the old world, Uh, those roles are the same, Um, but like anything, in order to industrialize and capitalize on things, you have to segment, Um, and so we've created like growers and winemakers, and what's interesting is, and uh, a little bit disenchanting for myself to learn was, you know, often at like the larger facilities, the winemakers didn't really have much to do with like the making of the wine. It was much more, the decision-making, absolutely, but, you know, it wasn't the wine maker that was racking the tank, you know, or, or actually making the blend. They were they were the ones that were making the decisions, obviously, but, like, you would send somebody to get the samples, they bring the samples, you taste the wines, you write up the job order, you send it to the seller manager, the seller manager gets it to the seller hand, it gets done by the chain of command, you know. And, and that, that was an interesting thing to see as well, is, uh, you know, um, looking at myself early in my career. Uh, Seeing different ways of like maybe success or how to move up in the world, and and um, you know that is certainly one of them to go to a larger winery and 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 you know be responsible for the production of lots of wine. And I think what a, what a lot of people in that position find is they do that, and then they also have their little like heart project um, that 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 gets a lot of love and attention, and everything gets a lot of attention. That's not to discredit the the larger quantity wines, um, but. Uh, yeah, it, it, interesting to be young and, and see all these different sides of the industry, and, and trying to vision like where do where do I go, where do I fit in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really cool. And then to to continue here, uh, the winemaking season slows down. Things are getting ready for bottled in New Zealand. A lot of the white wines are bottled within you know six months of, of being picked, um, and uh, and so uh, the winery season ends. As I mentioned, they're like the coolest family ever. They offered me a position to stay in the vineyard. Um, and so it was a 72 hectare vineyard. Um, this this was another funny one where the, the stars just worked out the right way. So I got hired initially as, I think I was called a, um, a vineyard technician. I like that term, that was a nice title to have. Uh, but basically, man, you drove tractor. Um, and it, the funny thing, in all, again, uh, Kiwis or people from New Zealand have an awesome, uh, cultural attitude of um, like you can do it, it's fine. You can do it, you know. And they have this one saying, and I won't say it in the Kiwi accent to not offend anybody, but they have a saying, and it's like she'll be right. And what it means is like she'll be all right, like you'll get it done. It's fine. And it's all often this situation of like they hired me to be a tractor technician, and I was like I've never driven a tractor before, and they're like oh you can figure it out, you know. And um, So anyway, I got hired as like the the younger uh, or not the younger necessarily but the the junior technician and then a month into the job the senior left and then I got pushed up um, again so one of those kind of, you know, the stars just aligned Um, and that was um, an amazing experience in seeing how, and this is larger, because we're talking about 70 hectares, which, you know, in Oregon is a fairly big operation. In New Zealand, it's not really that big of an operation at all. Um, But it was, like, really interesting to see how larger vineyard management works. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, you spend uh, 55 hours a week driving a tractor, and you get a very different perspective on life. Uh, My joke with my my wife, who I met in New Zealand, um, is, uh, you know, it's life at four kilometers an hour. Uh, and you, you know, you get a very different perspective of things when you're going that slow. Um, and then, you know, even when you're doing things by hand in the vineyard, wire lifting or shoot thinning or whatever, you know, you it's a very different perspective when you're working things like vine by vine. And then you, you get in that uh, winemaker crush mode of you just do. And then all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, well, day's done. And you look back and you're like, oh, I did all those rows right there, you know. And it's, uh, it's an interesting. Uh, um, Yeah, an interesting perspective as well.
1: So were you at that point thinking you
2: might stay in New Zealand? Was that something that was becoming a possibility? Uh, So that has a lot to do um, with my wife as well, who was not my wife at the time. Uh, But we had met almost immediately uh, upon getting there. If anyone goes and does a harvest in Marlborough, New Zealand, Blenheim is like the town that people, like, you know, if you work in Marlborough, you you had some sort of interaction in Blenheim it's very very small you meet everybody very quickly it's this really interesting culture because it's a very like rural New Zealand uh, society but at the same time there's tons and tons of young folk that come over from South America from Europe from North America to work harvest and like a lot of people that just backpack uh, so you have this really interesting like dichotomy of people of like an agricultural society, blended with like a very young, cosmopolitan, kind of European-based society. Um, and it's just this really interesting mesh of people. You meet everybody very quick. I met my wife. Um, the, the, the folks at the vineyard I was working with offered to keep me on, and the deal was it was either a three-year I believe or a five-year visa, um, and we had to prove a couple of things. Um, like any visa process, is not totally straightforward, uh, but they were they were committed to to giving me that opportunity. Um, at the time, my my not yet wife uh, was changing jobs, and she uh, her job was also linked to her uh, her visa, um, and we had a moment. Uh, where uh, it was like we both were going to be without a visa and to renew and we had this really critical decision to make of like, okay, do we commit to this because the people I was working for were awesome people, the people she was working for were awesome people and we knew we didn't want to make a commitment that we weren't going to follow through with. Um, And so our opinion was like it was best to either, you know, go ahead and go all in on it or if we're going to leave to do, do it right then. Um, We were looking at uh, Melbourne, Australia as an option. Um, I honestly don't know why. The the United States was an option too. Um, Another piece that plays into it is uh, currency exchange rates. Uh, we were both getting paid well, very well for what we did, and we both had like really good positions for, for where we were at. Um, but you know, when, you, when my wife is French, or uh, grew up in France, and uh, her family's all in Europe, my family's mostly on the east coast of the US, um, and when you make uh, your money in a different country that has a, a less strong uh, a dollar, to come back and visit your family in other countries puts you in a really tough position. We did the math, basically we would have Had three weeks vacation a year where we go visit our families come back and we start from zero every year and we're like That's not a very sustainable model Um, So that also played into it and we were like, well, you know, maybe we should just roll the dice and come back to Oregon Mm -hmm. Um, And I really had a lot of love for the Northwest. I had worked there for and lived there for Seven years almost by that point five, I don't know six years something like that Um, And knew I had some connections that could probably help us stay Float, mm-hmm. and so we decided that the northwest was was where we we're going to go, uh, and that was the beginning of 2019 that we moved back to, to the northwest. Just in time. Just in time, <laughs> and and really just in time because had we stayed in New Zealand during COVID and whatnot, it would have been a really really difficult position to be in. Um, uh, you. New Zealand in some sense is very isolated, just being an island in the middle of the Pacific, but then during COVID and whatnot, it was very, very isolated. Um, I think that would have a pl- uh, war on us uh, in, a, in a tough way. Um, so really just in time. And it also gave us a year to figure our stuff out in the U.S. before COVID happened, um, which was a crucial year because uh, you know, during COVID and whatnot, the whole job market flipped on its head. Nobody knew <laughs> The beginning of COVID was crazy, right? The whole world was ending. The sky was falling. Um, and so it gave us a year to like at least build a little bit of a base before the sky fell. You know?
1: <laughs> so at that point, you had you had done a little bit of everything. I mean, you'd been in retail and you'd been, you'd been in production. You'd been in the vineyard. Were you looking for something in particular when you came back
2: to Oregon? Yeah, um, I knew the wine that that was where I probably wanted to end up ultimately, Um, though I didn't know how to immediately do it. Uh, Like, I had moved to New Zealand with the job already set, um, so I, I, went, I went to Australia for a month. I like did all these things before knowing that where I was going to land, I had something set. And when we moved back to Oregon, we had nothing set. Mm-hmm. And so that was a very, uh, difficult, uh, young decision, but like what, you know, everything is important and it informs you how, how, you do things later on. Uh, but that was kind of tough. And, uh, um, uh, uh, something that's interesting in Oregon is like the cannabis industry is a really, you know, uh, big industry as well and uh, being in the Eugene area, I, I had always known people in the cannabis industry, and funny enough, when we first got back here, uh, that was like the first job available to us, was like doing hemp work, um, which is like super not glorious, doesn't really pay that well, but it pays, and it had we had a job, and that was important. Um, and then another funny way things fell, um, they were expanding, they were planting fields, uh, they had, uh, they just bought a tractor, but nobody knew how to drive it, and I was like, man, I just spent 60 hours a week for six months on a tractor. Like, you pay me to do it. Uh, And then that happened and that really saved us at a really crucial moment. My not-yet-wife had to go back to France because of visa things, Um, you can only stay for so long. Um, And um, yeah, so thank you to the cannabis guys for holding it down in a very important (laughs) moment where, you know, things weren't very stable. Um, And then... uh, While my wife was in France, I started to, uh, I I think I went to Napa at some point, I did the sommelier certification, just thinking, I don't have a formal education in wine, and just thinking it was something to have on the CV, it was just one more, you know, uh, certified, acknowledged uh, piece to have, so I, I went ahead and did that, and that was a really cool experience as well. Um, you know, I've done a little of the sales, done a little of production, but that's a very, like, specific mm-hmm. niche. And uh, it's interesting when you spend a lot of time around winemakers and then you go and hang a lot around sommeliers and you realize, like, vocabulary is different. Um, what is important is different. You talk about wine in different ways. Like, the way you value things is different. Um, so that was cool for me, just as, like, a more wholesome uh, understanding of wine to, to get that piece. Um, and then, yeah, doing the, the, the hemp thing. Um started taking uh, interviews and just going around and um, met some folks. Uh, another shout out, Olivier uh, Ochoa, who you just recently interviewed, uh, Petit Mondwine. Um, I had met him right when we moved back because somebody met my wife and I and was like, oh, you're French. you got to meet Olivier. <laughs> And Olivier is like the coolest, most generous, sincere dude ever. Um, and I met him first, and he didn't really have a job or anything to offer, but he like immediately just opened his connections up to me and was like, oh, I don't, you know, I, I import wine, so I don't know many people in production, but here, go meet with this person. And I ended up taking an interview with somebody Olivier put me on with. Um, and then that person was like, ah, we're really just looking for somebody to drag hoses around. I don't think you're really going to be satisfied with this, but... And then he pointed me to, uh, the Beckhams, Andrew and Andrea Beckham, who I think you also have interviewed, um, and was like, I think they are in a need of somebody. Um, and so then my wife was, or my not yet wife was in France, um, and I went to the Beckhams and gave my CV and I was like, I know you guys didn't advertise anything, but that guy told me, Drew at JK Carrier, thank you, Drew. Um, that you guys might need help, and um, and so I like pitched it to them, and I was like, I've done the whole small winery thing, I've done the wine club, I've done the production, like basically you need me, <laughs> and um, and Andrew and Andrea are very awesome people as well, um, and they did need somebody in a very dynamic position. As I said, you know small wineries often need somebody to do a lot of different things, and so the deal was to work the summer with Andrea doing the tasting room and the wine club stuff in order to work harvest with Andrew in the fall. Um, And that is kind of how that happened. And then uh, started leaving the hemp thing behind, more committing to the wine. Worked harvest with Andrew, and then we had a, a moment at the end of that harvest, which which was awesome. A totally different experience altogether. They're a very, very small winery. Mostly everything is a state. Um, I think we did like 35 tons or something like that. Really, really small. But the funny thing is like not, um, you know, at a very large winery, you have all this equipment to make things very efficient. At a small winery, you don't always have that, and so m- more uh, less tons of wine often is more work, right? So, you know, 35 tons at that winery was almost mm-hmm. the same amount of work as a couple hundred tons at a different winery, you know? And um, and then just working with Andrew, um, he has a very different approach to winemaking, very natural wine, super minimalist, um, Andrew's also a, a very, um, somebody really open to, you um, creative input, Um, and so that was really cool, got to to work with him, take a very, very different uh, perspective on wine. Um, We did the harvest together, it went really well. Andrew also makes the amphora, the the clay um, novum, as he calls them, Um, and so that was like a totally different vessel I'd never worked with before, which is very cool. At the end of harvest, the moment comes where it's wintertime, small wineries often don't have much going on in the winter, and it was told we could no longer uh, employ you full time. Um, And so I started to look for other jobs, circled back to Olivier at Petit Monde, and he was like, I got a job for you. You come do wine deliveries and warehouse management for me. And so then I was at one job for a very short period of time and then found myself back in two jobs again. And then in that time, my wife and I got married us prior to harvest. Um, I love my wife, she's the perfect person in the world, but uh, we had a lot of pressure on us because of uh, visa and immigration status um, to make it happen really quick. And here's a big shout out to Ray Walsh, Ray and his wife Jen offered to host our wedding. And um, I will never forget, I had a moment at Capitello. Uh, Capitello's raised brand where I was like setting up the patio and f- and putting up the umbrellas in the morning and this was like very late right before going to New Zealand but not yet knowing I was going to New Zealand and just being like man what am I gonna do I really hope one day I look back on this moment and kind of laugh and I remember just like putting up the umbrella and then the moment that 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 came full circle was I got married at that place and uh, Ray and I had like built the patio outside together I had painted the, the outside of the building I had done a ton of work there and it was a really like fulfilling moment to circle back and like have my family there and and to get married at the place that I had put so much you know love and energy into and then to have Ray and Jen be the ones hosting it that was like the coolest thing so that was very very generous of their part and very like fulfilling to see that come come full circle um, so yeah coming back into harvest 2019 um, uh, not sure I had a full-time position at Beckham started working for Petit monde which was another brilliant experience because you Olivia uh, imports and distributes wine um, and so you work in the domestic wine making you have a very you know kind of uh, Uh, not necessarily tunnel vision but like a very specific vision of wines and when you're working in the tasting room you're selling the wine that you make and then all of a sudden I had this opportunity to see all this other wine that was being imported from France and Italy and taste with the wine reps and um, some of the job was you know just driving cases around, which was cool because we were still relatively new to Portland and that was an awesome moment, like, you know, if you drive to all the different restaurants you're going to discover the neighborhoods (laughs) and, you know, you learn your way around town and you also get to meet people. And um, so that was uh, not necessarily like the most glorious job I've ever had, but like the, it was so awesome for the people that I worked with and the access to wines that I had. Um, And uh, Olivier for, you know, just being the person that he is and really keeping uh, understanding that you know at some sense i was just a driver but like knowing how important it was for everybody to be um like uh, attached and, and involved in the overall operations always including me in the tastings and making it a really valuable educational experience as well and then the pandemic hit and then the pandemic hit. Um, and then my wife got pregnant. <laughs> we didn't even make it a year before my wife was pregnant, which is awesome. Um, so uh, the pandemic hit, uh, man, crazy. My wife was working a job. Uh, she is a pastry chef as working like Michelin restaurants all over the world. Um, had was working insane hours. We would get up at like 3:30 in the morning and finish at like 8 PM at night. And I was working. We we're still new to the US way in debt, super struggling. Um, and she started to get like night sweats. And this is like right at the pandemic. So I think it was like the Thursday that, um, before the world changed or whatever um, and the her, the business she was working for was like, we got to stop. Like, we're going to stop production. Everybody's got to go home next week. We don't know what we're doing. Um, and then she was feeling sick and it was like night sweats for a while. And so we went to the doctor and this is right in the beginning of COVID where like, if you had a runny nose, you thought you were dying. Um, and so we went to the doctor, thought that she was going for COVID and they're like, you're pregnant. <laughs> and that was uh, not at all what we were thinking. Um, and Man, that was uh, uh, a moment of realizing, um, you know, whatever we're doing right now, like it's it's really important that we like make the right decisions right now. And so I think that moment, um, for me, in what I was doing career-wise, particularly because my wife just lost her position, uh, it was really important that um, I felt um, we were, you know, making the right steps to build the life that we wanted to build. Um, and so. The Beckhams were awesome, kept me employed during COVID. Olivier Petit Monde kept me employed during COVID. Awesome, awesome people, very generous. Um, another piece of winemaking. As I said, you gotta do everything. Uh, The winery, we stopped doing tastings. So the wine that we were making, we continued to bottle and whatnot, but there wasn't nearly as many hours. And so Andrew had a construction project that he was working on for a family member, and I ended up just going to be the construction helper. And we built like a three story deck. Um, And so that was another one of those funny ones of like, you want to be a winemaker, you wax the car, you know, (laughs) Uh, or you build a deck. Um, And so, yeah, stayed employed through that. Uh, Finally, just prior to harvest i believe man all this gets mixed up but my son was due in november of 2020 and uh, if you're a winemaker and you have a child due between august and november it's rather problematic (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and that also just happened to be the year of smoke Um, and so in a very um uh, selfish way, I was really happy that the smoke happened because it greatly diminished harvest and made things way shorter and made it like feasible for me to think about having a child on the 16th of November. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a, a very interesting harvest. I remember very distinctly uh, in like the second week of September, I think that's when the smoke came in, and talking to Andrew, and he was like, I don't think we're going to pick. And that is like now, with retrospect, was a, a reasonable thing to think, but at the time, I was like unfathomable. Like, what do you mean we're not going to pick? What have we been doing for the last, you know, whole time working on the, the vines and whatnot? Um, and so we ended up making wine. Um, we ended up selling a lot of wine as bulk wine. Uh, we were in the, the confines of natural winemaking where you don't want to use a ton of products to manipulate and change, um, so it puts you in a really tough position for when you have things like smoke taint. Um, and so, very, very short harvest that year. The Beckhams were awesome in helping me get to a place where I could support my family. Olivier Petit Mon was awesome to, to help me do that as well. Um, and I think I continued working both jobs for another, like, two months after my son was born, and then I committed to being fully employed by Beckham Estate and, and leaving Petitmont. And that was a very amicable depart from and I still have a very good relationship with Olivier to this day. Um, that's, I think that's how you know um, you've worked for good people is when you quit and like you still have tons of love and respect and like they actually, it's not that they wanted you to quit, but they're happy to see you, you know, commit to, to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was a really cool position and so continued to be full time for the Beckhams from there. Um, and then uh, did Harvest 2021 um, and was kind of getting to a point where um, working for a small winery can be difficult in that um, there is uh, uh, limits to growth. Um, you can only produce so much wine. You can only sell so much wine. Um, and. You know, uh, you're in a position too where you're not the owner, you're the employee. And uh, uh, this is no disrespect at all to Andrew and Andrea. Um, You know, you just, it it becomes to a point where you you are trying to grow and continue moving in your uh, career, um, but you realize. It's, it's hard and, and the business can't always grow to the level that you want to grow. And uh, you have to have that sort of symmetry. Um, and that was starting to happen right at a, a moment where I had another connection circle back. Um, somebody I met years and years before who was a barrel rep um, and, and, and sold barrels and tanks, a French guy who imported wine or barrels and, and vessels from France uh, who approached me thanks to Ray um, and uh, and and offered uh, to interview me for a position as a barrel rep and a, um, a, a, a tanks uh, uh, importer mm-hmm. um, and so that all kind of was happening at the moment of, of thinking about okay what's next and um, And I ended up getting that job in, uh, like, October of 2021, right, during harvest. And um, it was kind of bittersweet to depart from the Beckhams, because, you know, they had been there through a lot of really important parts of my life. But, again, one of those moments where, you know, you know you've worked for good people when you leaving keeps you on good terms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, one of the really cool pieces of the circle is that... uh, Uh, The company I work for now, Artisan Barrels and Tanks, actually represents Andrew's Novum. Um, So we sell his amphora, which was a very cool way to to keep the the circle moving there. yeah, wow, that's like a life story. <laughs> that's
1: the whole goal of Yeah, you there, yeah. So you're doing this is awesome. Okay. Tell me, um, with Artisan Barrels and Tanks specifically, uh, what intrigued you about it? Something you yeah. had, so kind of something new. So yeah, what, yeah. What was exciting about it for you?
2: Uh, several pieces. One is working in proximity to production. Um, you're in a very unique role, and this is, I think, one of the, the coolest parts about my job, um, where, You can enter a wine cellar and speak with a winemaker and ask very intrusive questions and it's actually they're really receptive of that and like the better questions you ask the more you build a relationship with the person and the more you actually solidify your role as their supplier Um, and so it's a really unique thing and I find myself all the time kind of being amazed at this but like I'll go to you know Okanagan in in British Columbia and, and walk into this phenomenal winery and just like get the tour of the winery with the winemaker and just be like man how many people would flip to have this opportunity. And I just get to sit here and like, you know, how much whole cluster did you use on that wine? Like, did you sulfur it at at Crush? Or, you know, all these questions that like, uh, for one winemaker to another winemaker, maybe not in their best interest to answer because, you know, it's not trade secrets necessarily, but it's, uh, you know, important Mm decision-making procedures, but you're in a position where the more you develop that relationship with the person, the better help that you can be in, in supplying them the vessels that, you know, uh, I have this access to these tools, you have your project, the better I understand your project, the better I can kind of suggest different tools that might be useful for your project. Uh, so that is really cool. Um, the other huge piece here is the French connection. Uh, we work with French suppliers, our owner is French, it's a very small company, we're four people total. Um, and. Um, the 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 introductory period they brought me over to France or actually it was coinciding with a trip to France my son had never met his French family we got married and had a kid before we went back to France so we had to happen Um, and it coincided with taking the new job to where I went and visited their uh, Cooperage in Burgundy uh, the the concrete tank supplier in Burgundy the stainless tank supplier in Bordeaux and um, it was a very kind of it worked out really well. I was going to France anyway and we made it a work slash family trip. Um, and yeah, now I, I get to work directly with these producers in France. Um, uh, we speak French at home. Uh, I think that probably helped get the job a little bit, but we work with the French suppliers. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's a very, as I mentioned, a really unique position. And I think another piece to me, we we're talking about like growth and trying to match yourself in a, in a career, and a job where. You can grow at the rate that uh, you want to be with the rate of the business's growth, um, and you know it's a sales job, and it's about you know sales and commissions, and the more you sell, the better you do, and it's very linked to you know there's no there's no cap to growth, there's no limit. If you sell a million barrels, you did a really good year. You know there's no it's not like you can't sell a certain amount. You know if you outsell how much your supplier can produce, like you did really well, <laughs> and that's probably not going to happen. You know. Um, so yeah, it was a, an opportunity to, uh, to use the knowledge that I had acquired from all these other opportunities in the production of wine. Um, and then, you know, have an opportunity, uh, I have a child now, I'm married, I have a, a wife and a family to support and it was an opportunity to like help us reach the next step in our personal life. Um, using the the skills and tools and experiences that yeah, I had acquired during my my past jobs.
1: I know it's still pretty you're still pretty new to the position, yeah, absolutely. but I'm curious if it's if it has altered or changed your perspectives on wine or winemaking at all yet.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely has, um, and um, I think. Uh, we, we mentioned it, at, not to use the word tunnel vision because that's not the right word, but it's, it's kind of in the, the realm of, of when you're in wine production and you're focused on your product and you're focusing on what you're trying to achieve in your goals, uh, you do get very zoned in. And what's really interesting is to like, get zoned out and I have a very like macro view of things. Um, in the past three months, I've like been, uh, in the month of March, I was home for seven days total the whole entire month and just visiting California, Washington, um, uh, Canada, um, uh, Oregon obviously and um, yeah you just see a lot in a very very short period of time and you get a much more macro view and I think both perspectives have their advantages. but it's just interesting to see a different perspective I didn't have prior, um, and then you also you know you talk to different folks and you see different you know, like I mentioned, I have an opportunity to just talk directly to people and, and really get a, a, an understanding and uh, I think the the more that um, The more maybe that a customer or client can uh, get from me, the more valuable I am too. So you know, if you learn something from somebody, you think it might be valuable to somebody else, you can be this kind of like vessel of information sharing and you know, that's with all due respect to winemakers because obviously there's something that's proprietary and like you know, working with folks, you need to respect that and and honor that. but also, you know, just interesting, you get a very macro view. And, and then things where, you know, working in like the tiny, not tiny, but the, the natural wine world of Oregon, there's certain wines that like, Uh, don't become villainized, but like become the inverse, you know, Um, and like uh, not to knock California, but you know, there's a lot of like wines from Napa that like, you know, I think a lot of Oregon winemakers is like, that's not what we want to be. But it's interesting to go there and and talk to those people doing those wines and and learn why those wines are the way that they are. And and I think, you know, everything has value as long as uh, what do we say in this world? Things are worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. You know, and as long as there's a market for those things, everything is valuable. You know, the, the tiny no intervention natural zero zero sulfur wine is just as valuable as like the 200 percent new oaked Napa Cabernet. You know, and there's no um, it's all about perspective and it's all about what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's, it's helped me um, be a lot more diplomatic in, in my wine uh, selection, if you will. Um, Diplomacy is important. Diplomacy is very important, (laughs) yes. Particularly in sales, too, right? You know, you you have a goal. You're trying to sell somebody something. But if you come off too hard on it, and I've been on the other side of the table, been a winemaker meeting with a barrel rep, too. And, you know, if you push something too hard, it loses its, you know, you you want it to be a collaborative uh, scenario. You don't want it to be... uh, you know, how can I tell you what you need if I don't know what you do? (laughs) Right? It's important. So, uh, this last year for me has been just trying to meet everybody, introduce myself, not change the recipe for anyone, but just learn, you know, and and try and establish relationships with people because I think in in anything you do that's hugely important, right?
1: So with that in mind, uh, having just gotten started and having the the world sort of slowly opening back up into Something like it used to be. Uh, What do you see as you look ahead for yourself, uh, for the work you're doing, and and for potential other things
2: down the road? Yeah uh logistics international logistics is like the the big hot ticket right now because we import things from europe and uh, things are more expensive than they've ever been to get them over in containers Um, things take more time than ever Um, the price of logistics almost outweighs the price of products in certain scenarios and it makes you like rethink what should be consumed and what's reasonable to be consumed Um, and i think like wine completely aside that is a um, a global uh, issue that the current world is like addressing and with covid and whatnot like supply chains got all wrinkled Um, demands skyrocketed in places they hadn't skyrocketed and sunk in other places Um, and it's yeah it's a it's a whole new entity of international business uh, but it's like really really important and you know it, it affects many different things like you go to the grocery store there's no avocados like. has to do with the supply chain it's the same thing we're dealing with when we're trying to bring tanks over from france Mm -hmm. you know and it's the same thing that um you know if you're trying to furnish your new house and you just buy a couch and it takes nine months and you're like how could it take nine months to buy a couch and you're like well actually you know it got produced over there it got shipped to there it got put on the boat here sat outside of the port for three months here before it got you know there's a lot of pieces to um, the way we consume things. And that's uh, an interesting thing. And, and wine is implicated just as everything is implicated in that.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Oregon a little bit. Uh, tell me about your uh, sort of initial impressions of Oregon wine in the industry and, and how those impressions have, have changed, if they
2: have, uh, in the time you've been a part of it. Yeah. Um, so, there's folks that have been in the Oregon wine industry way longer than I have, so I don't want to make any, like, big whoa well, in the lab, you know. <laughs> um, but I will say, uh, I find the Oregon wine industry to be really approachable, and people to be super down-to-earth. and. Um, it's a very like give respect get respect kind of scenario and if you're um, you know interested and uh, willing to ask good questions and really listen I think um, it's impressive to see how receptive winemakers and people who are like really, really influential in the industry, um, how approachable these people actually are. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as I said, I've been to a bunch of different wine regions in the last couple months, particularly, like in the crash course of the Northwest, Pacific Northwest and Canada. Um, And man, people in Oregon are just like really, really cool and genuine and uh, approachable. Um, And I think that is this like really distinct charm of what's happening here in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think the climate here, although it's getting warmer, um, is we can make really pretty wines. And there's a lot of wine regions that it's just really hot. It's really intense weather and the wines, don't quite as have as much, maybe, um, elegance isn't the right word because you can make an elegant wine from anything, but um, not from bad grapes, but uh, from super ripe grapes you can have an elegant wine as well, Um, but um, delicate maybe? yeah, we just have a really unique climate here in Oregon. It rains a ton. It's it's cool a lot of the year, and the summer it gets warm. There's a lot of diurnal shift most places in Oregon. Um, We're in the new world. There's no rules, right? You can grow whatever you want to grow anywhere. You can find Syrah in the Willamette Valley. Um, you know, gamay I think is this new kind of one that people are really paying a lot of attention to. Um, there's no rules whatsoever for whites. You'll find riesling next to chardonnay. You know, um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's cool. I think Oregon has that kind of like a pioneer Northwest spirit and I think you see it in the wine world. And you see a lot of people like the Beckons are a great example of just like, you know, somebody who has a skill set of ceramics and who gets in, enthralled with winemaking and can like cut their own path to, to make those things become one and, uh, you know, to, to build a business around it. Um, and, and I think the, the consumer culture here is very receptive to that as well. Where I think Oregon consumers are like, they really want something with a story, and they want to know how things were produced. And I think that curiosity is like what fuels the industry being as unique as it is. That's not to say it's only in Oregon, right? There's a lot of other places that have that as well, but I, I think it's something that Oregon does really well. So, what about as you look ahead for the industry? What's what's coming next? Yeah, um I think uh whatever you want to call it like changing uh temperatures, changing climates, whatever buzzword you want to put on it. Like it it's something that's being addressed in the wine industry right now and it's like really important on people's minds like currently right now Um, there's pretty grim crop estimates in Oregon. Um, We had in April, like a Thursday at 75 degrees and then it snowed a couple inches on Sunday and it was frosting and hailing that week and it really did damage, it was right at bud break. Um, So that's huge, I've I've heard, uh, talked to a lot of different folks, I've heard estimates as bad as like 80% loss. I've heard people that are being rather optimistic about it but like are acknowledging that like yields are gonna be down um, you know, the fire in 2020 was a really, uh, big moment of like, whoa, I thought we were, you know, uh, avoiding all this. Um, and that was also just like during COVID and whatnot, you're like, man, what else? <laughs> what, what possibly, and then I had a funny conversation with, uh, Nathan Paddock, who is Andrew's assistant, uh, in the ceramics forming of the Novum Amphora really awesome ceramics artist, very, very good at what he does. And uh, Nathan told me, he's like, don't ask that question. Don't ask what else, because you don't want to find out. And Nathan was very right in that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's important. I, I, like uh, difficulties to make things ripen where they used to ripen, being able to ripen uh, grape varietals that never would have been considered in certain regions. Um, you know, California's in a perpetual drought. They're actually having a pretty good year right now. Um, I think it, we, that is the contradiction of wine is it's nature and it's man and like you can have the man side of it all dialed but like nature plays a really important role here too um, and I think that is you know it's, it's connected mm-hmm. to the earth and mm-hmm. if the earth is changing and uh, not happy with what we're doing um, then you know you're going to see it in the wines. So now that
1: you're you're in a role that you you, you, you you mentioned all the reasons you're excited about the role you're in st- stability and and it kind of a way to build on your role do you have down the line thoughts of returning to production returning to different parts of the wine industry
2: yeah um that's that's never a um Actually, when they offered me the job, they offered me to uh, do it like part-time half the year to do the sales and then the other half the year stay in production, but I have always, always worked multiple jobs and the idea of having one job, this is really appealing to me. And I'm, I'm very thankful that that happened the way it happened because right now with logistics and whatnot, uh, just following containers coming from Europe is like a full-time job. Um, so that, yeah. Um, I, it's interesting. I. I uh, my season right now slows down during harvest, and I think what I'm going to do is just like call up winemaker folk and just be like, can I come and do punch downs and clean tanks for you? You know, I'm down with that too. Throw on the car hearts for a day. Um, I don't know. I, I love wine production. I love the industry. Um, I, I don't see myself uh, leaving it ever completely, um, but uh, yeah, uh, who knows. It's, uh, and, and the stability thing here is, is, uh, is, is, is cool, but at the same time, you know, we're uh, supplying wine vessels for a volatile industry dependent on nature is not super stable either. There's good years and there's bad years, you know, so um, it's like anything, nothing is guaranteed, right? <laughs> you gotta find your way to navigate any, you know, bumpy waters. So if someone were to ask you uh,
1: for your like, advice or words of wisdom on, on joining in the Oregon wine industry, what would you
2: what would you tell them? Yeah, go work a harvest. Just go work clean tanks, do the cellar work. And mm-hmm. if you don't find joy in that kind of stuff, it's probably not the right industry for you um, because that is really like the building blocks of everything, you know? and. Um, yeah, it's, it's, as I said before, it's manual labor, but it's artistry, and you can't just be the winemaker. Who like gets to present his wine at winemaker dinners and dress nice, You know you have to also be the one out there, you know, crushing grapes and cleaning the press. And um, so I would say go work a harvest, go be a cellar rat somewhere. Um, and if it pleases you, then you're probably in the right place. And if you if you don't like it and it's not your thing, then you know there's there's other uh, there's other auxiliary aspects of the industry. You know, like you can be an importer, you can be a wine rep. You know. Um, if you want to be in the production side start by cleaning a tank I think that's like the <laughs> that would be my two cents there perfect well that's all the
1: questions that I have for you uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have anything we didn't cover that we should have covered today
2: Um, I think we owe a lot of respect uh, to winemakers, you know I am now in an auxiliary role and I'm not a producer and uh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the position I have without that and I think we also owe a lot of respect to folks that work in the vineyards and I think unfortunately that is something that gets glossed over a lot of times there's a lot of folks out there that work full time in the vineyards that get very little or no credit whatsoever for the very very difficult and extremely important work that they do Um, and it's a lot of Hispanic folks a lot of Latin folk um, it's a lot of people that you know don't get. um, Don't reap the benefits of the glorification of wine. And um, I think, you know, we need to look at things critically and understand that, like, it's a lot more than just the bottle that's in front of you. There's a lot of other pieces that played into it. And um, yeah, people who work in agriculture are crucial to our society in many, many different ways and, and maybe deserve a little more credit than they get sometimes. Well said. Well, thank
1: you so much for for joining us today, uh, for sharing your stories with us, sharing all your your perspectives with us,
2: and uh, we'll let you off the hook. Awesome, thank you guys, much appreciated.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.